Welcome everyone to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. Experiential learning is such an important way to get the most out of college. It's a way to apply what you're learning in a way that has impact for you and for your community, whether it's, you know, working with a professor on their research or doing a class project for a nonprofit or a startup in the community. These are all ways to turn learning into an engaging experience. And so I'm so excited to have two special guests today for our conversation. Steve Ehrman, who's my co-author on an upcoming article on this topic about the value of, of real-world projects and experiential learning, and Dr. Melanie Sexton from Valencia College, who's an undergraduate research coordinator, who's a professor of psychological sciences, and has won awards for her work in experiential education from the Society of Experiential Education, which is how we got connected. Welcome, Melanie and Steve. Thank you, Elliot. Steve, you wanna introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Steve Ehrman, and I've had, I guess, over a 50-year career at this point trying to help institutions improve learning, higher ed institutions improve learning and access. I started as an evaluator and experimental college called Evergreen, almost 20 years making grants to support innovations on higher education, vice provost for teaching and learning at George Washington. And in the last five or six years, I've been focusing on institutions of today that are already improving their quality of learning, equitable access, and affordability simultaneously. And one thread that they've got in common is a very thoughtful and extensive use of experiential learning, real-world projects, and so on, which what breaks me here. Thanks. Good to have you. Melanie, Dr. Sexton, can you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah. So my educational background is a little bit unique because, you know, I have a PhD. My specialty and my training is in cognitive neuroscience. So trained as a psychologist and really started getting into teaching even while I was working on my doctorate. So while I was at Vanderbilt, which is considered R1 research university, I realized that I really like working with students. I really like mentoring students. And so after I ended up graduating, I decided to go a little bit more into the student serving, student advising side of things. Did that for a couple of years before jumping back into the classroom. And so my pathway eventually took me to Valencia. It is a two-year institution, which I absolutely love and adore because here I feel like I'm really having an impact with my students. So I've been with Valencia for about eight years, teaching psychology, general psychology, developmental, cognitive, I've branched out a little bit because of some access and opportunities to engage in experiential education. So in some of my classes, I'll have the opportunity to embed service learning, research, globalization techniques. But my main classes are general psychology, developmental, cognitive. And then I've also started teaching research process as well as doing some independent research projects. The thing about me that is, I guess, unique to Valencia, but then also most two-year institutions is I also serve as the college-wide coordinator for undergraduate research, which basically means that I serve all seven campuses for Valencia, making sure that students who are interested in getting engaged in undergraduate research 
have that opportunity at the 1,000, 2,000 level course load, which is pretty unique. We're starting to see that nationwide, not a lot of these two-year state colleges have a program like this. So I started getting in touch with SEE, the Society for Experiential Education. They learned about my work, not just in undergraduate research, but my service learning practices, my globalization practices that I was doing with students, community engagement. And I became very involved with that society. In fact, I even helped to develop, design, and teach their experiential education and diversity, equity, and inclusion professional development course. So that was one that I've designed as part of their certificate program now. So I've really kind of thrown myself into this practice. I see the value. I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit more about it with you today. But yeah, that's a little bit of me in the nutshell. Well, that's great. Really excited to have you both. You know, we've heard in your intro, we've heard about undergraduate research and service learning and community engagement. Give us a sense of, you know, what are some of the most popular and maybe even more importantly, like most powerful forms of experiential learning so that we have some, you know, some concrete examples? I'm a little bit biased. So my first mm -hmm. answer is going to be undergraduate research. I was an undergraduate researcher myself. I started off doing research when I was a junior at the University of Central Florida. It just worked out because I ended up coming back to Orlando and I've maintained those relationships back from when I was, you know, a college undergraduate. So that benefits my students who are now going from Valencia to UCF to complete their bachelor's degrees. So with undergraduate research, the reason I like it so much is because I really do think it creates transferable skills, regardless of major, regardless of discipline. Our students who are planning to go to medical school, graduate school, business school, or even into the workforce, we see a lot of skills being developed through those practices that undergraduate research really push. And so I tell my students, if you're curious, if you're innovative, I mean, this is a practice for you. It really fosters critical thinking skills. It really helps with collaboration, writing, learning how to express yourself, form a question. So that is just one of my personal interests. And like I said, I do teach the research process class. And in that class, I have 15 to 20 students who explore the idea of coming up with their own novel research question. And so I really do challenge them to try to think of something that nobody else has ever done. I always tell my students, if, if you can Google it, this isn't the question you should be asking. We really want to ask a question that doesn't have it. The good litmus test. Yeah. It, exactly. Exactly. So I really find the value in undergraduate research. I think it can be applicable to many disciplines. It's interdisciplinary by nature. But I am going to give a shout out for service learning as well as civic engagement and some of that internationalizing because I do a little bit of those practices as well. And could you define service learning and civic engagement yeah. for us? Yeah. So with service learning, the way we consider it is you have a two-way reciprocal learning process between the mm -hmm. student and a community partner. I try to tell my students to think of it as more than just volunteering because yes, you are committing you know, your time to an organization, but at the same time, you should be teaching each other something. So my students and I, because I teach developmental psychology, one project that's near and dear to my heart is my students, as they're learning about lifespan development and the psychological issues that happen as we grow, you know, from infancy into adulthood. We work closely with the elementary school that is a block away from us. And so a couple of times during the semester, my students and my college students walk over. We meet with the kindergartners. The kindergartners bond with the college students and vice versa. And they get a chance to learn from each other. So while the kindergartners are, you know, talking to these 20-year-olds and being like, what's college like? You know, like, how do you like your classes? What is the advanced education like? The students are also learning about the background of these kids, you know, the home upbringing of these kids, 
what education is like now because they haven't been in that type of classroom for a while. And one of the projects they have to do is help that child write a book. So again, just bringing it back to some of that cognitive development, those social skills development, but it is very much a learning process for both the college students and those elementary school students. So like I said, it's a two-way street. That sounds great. It sounds like in the same way that Google is a good litmus test for a unique research question, like if it's not a two-way relationship, that's like the litmus test for service learning. Yeah. For service learning. And what about things like capstone projects and you know, students in a class doing a, you know, acting as a consultant for a group in the community in their marketing class or their data analytics class? Like, where does that fit in your taxonomy yeah. of, of service learning and civic engagement and undergrad research and experiential mm -hmm. learning? So the capstone projects, I will say we don't see too much of that at the 1000, 2000 level, but I know our bachelors in business, those students tend to have to do some sort of final capstone in their senior year. However, for like a final project, we do require our undergraduate research students to complete an undergraduate research project. So mm -hmm. after they take a research methods course, they are matched with the faculty mentor in discipline and they spend a semester actually coming up with the methodology, collecting data, analyzing the data and writing up an entire paper. And then at the end of every term, I host a college-wide showcase. It's open to the public. And they have to present on Zoom. So it's live, it's synchronous. I have colleagues from all over Florida institutions coming in and judging and talking with my students. So it's just a great vibe. The students like it because it's a great networking opportunity. But that does count as a final grade for those students who have completed the entire research project. Every institution has certain facts of life, I guess. And it's sometimes hard to be aware of them unless you've been at other institutions. What are some of the features of Valencia that make it a, a suitable, hospitable, nurturing place to do what you were just describing? That's a great question. I guess I, the good thing is I get a lot of uh, autonomy in what I do. We also recognize the value of high impact practices. So everybody's familiar with like the AACU's, you know, description of the top 10 high impact practices here. And so I will say that our leadership recognizes the importance and they recognize the long-term benefits. The biggest challenge I will say that we've had probably relates more so to undergraduate research. I think the college is generally supportive of service learning. That is something that is easy for us to implement. You know, Valencia is a community college at heart. So we want to find ties to the community. And you can do that through service learning. Same thing with the civic engagement, community engagement. Where it struggles is finding that connection to undergraduate research because we are not a research intensive university. So having worked at Vanderbilt and having worked at UCF, they have labs to support undergraduate research. They have resources and the infrastructure and the funding to support these endeavors and these types of, you know, highly sought after projects. Faculty are trained with terminal degrees to really help the students push their interests. At Valencia, our focus is teaching. So this is where we kind of have to find a way to make it work with the tools that we have here. And so I've gotten a little bit creative. You know, I always tell my students, the idea is to get you exposure to the scientific method, right? You may want to do cancer research. We're not going to do cancer research at Valencia, but you can learn about how, you know, certain types of biological matter grow in petri dishes, and you can work with the biology professor to ask a question that's much, much to a smaller scale. So we work with them. And then again, my benefit of having a connection to my four-year partners is I say, hey, I have a student graduating with their AA. They're interested in biomedical. Can you take them? 
And there's a handoff that starts to be developed as I do my role, you know, as coordinator, as I start to build my network. They start to see that trust. They start to see that my students have developed a thesis. They know what a research question is. They can write a proposal. And so even though they haven't necessarily spent a lot of time in a lab, they're willing to take the training over from there. So the biggest one is just kind of getting that undergraduate research on the map for the two-year program. In Florida, I've looked at our 30 state schools, and I will say that maybe five of us have some semblance of an undergraduate research program. Most of them are through just a science department or through an honors department. Only one of them has a fully separate, independent undergraduate research program. And that's what I'm trying to create here at Valencia is really to say that our students are benefiting by having this experience. In fact, we've had our highest numbers since returning from the pandemic. We've had about 22 classes encoded with some type of undergraduate research curriculum. So not only are the students seeing the benefit, our faculty are seeing the benefit. It is one of the more highly sought after high impact practices, experiential education practices being used at the college right now. So there's momentum growing. I also recently wrote a paper published in 2021 about making it more equitable, making it more accessible, because I do think there was a lot of this mindset that one, two-year programs couldn't have a program like this. We've kind of shown that that's wrong. And then what we've also done is we've made more online options. Because I think that was also a barrier that was stopping a lot of students from getting involved. Thinking about your experience and kind of like looking across the higher ed landscape and everything you have exposure to through the Society for Experiential Education, I'm curious about how you kind of support and scale up experiential learning practices. You know, Steve and I have a hypothesis, which is that there's amazing work everywhere, but it's in small pockets. Uh And we're interested in figuring out how people identify those pockets and how they cultivate that into something that's more systemic, systematic, like how do you identify them? You know, what do you do centrally versus what's distributed? What are your thoughts on that? So we recently developed an office for engaged practices, which is what Valencia is calling it. So I'm hoping that we can start to kind of build some resources through that office. It's led by Dr. Charlie. But what I have found tends to be the best way to kind of get these programs to really grow is uh, faculty buy-in because the faculty are the one kind of doing the work on the ground. And so even in my work as coordinator, I don't want to lose that faculty status. I don't ever want to not be in the classroom because I know that for me to do my job well, even as a researcher, I need to know what the students are saying. I need to be able to connect and have that connection and relationship with my colleagues. The way I've gotten more people involved with service learning and undergraduate research is by saying, here's an idea. Here's how I did it in my classroom. And so if people can kind of look at their outcomes and see a connection to one of these practices, I think that's what makes it fun. That's what's going to get the buy-in. So starting with your faculty and really valuing their input and trying to speak their language in terms of what they do, I think that's really going to be what helps it to grow. So, you know, with us having 22 undergraduate research classes, that's me just having done outreach. You know, I spoke to my friends and it kind of just got the ball rolling because they're like, okay, it's not as hard as you're saying it's going to be. And again, with me being coordinator, yes, I have that little bit of administrative role, but I'm still a faculty member. I'm still working in the classroom. So they know I'm not just giving them top-down instructions. It's very much a conversation about, hey, peer-to-peer, let's see what we can figure out. Looking across institutions, one of the issues that 
I think relates strongly to the priority that's placed on undergraduate research is whether most faculty and administrators think about education as a one-way process, okay. content it's sometimes called. And that's also based on the idea that the outcomes are under control of students. It's like we, we provide the water, the good students will drink it. Yeah. The other way, of course, is that education is a two-way process because what matters is the results for the, the students who are there, not just what's sent at them, but what happens. That's something that faculty need to be continually learning about. Absolutely. In order to adjust their teaching. What sort of things are there about Valencia that supports this latter perspective? That's a great question, Steve. So I just finished the tenure process. I officially became tenured in June. And a part of that whole process and my portfolio was looking at just what you said, our own scholarship of teaching. And so what I did, again, putting my own biases into place here, was in my GenSight course, it was online, but I wanted to see if I could start training those students in undergraduate research thinking, thought processes. So in addition to their textbook, I actually started giving them scientific articles to read. And I kind of wanted to see if they were able to, you know, figure out the hypothesis, explain the research, what were the methods that they use? What are the broader implications from this scientific article? And so they had four instances of reading different articles. What I did was the first four weeks, they kind of just were left to their own devices. See how you do. Unsurprisingly, they struggled. They struggled with that assignment. So my intervention was to essentially create a module saying, here's how you approach a scientific article. Here are the important parts. Here's are the things I want you to identify. Here's how I break down an article. Don't start with the intro, you know, actually go to the methodology and kind of teaching them the proper way to approach that type of peer-reviewed journal article. From there, scores increased. It skyrocketed. I actually did a median split and found that my high scores on the first one, they plateaued. They were 90% average across. But the students who were my low scores who struggled went from an average of 60 to an average of 88. So we talk about like equitable intervention. That module definitely increased their scientific literacy skills and they maintained that for the rest of the semester. So I know that what I was doing was at least working. I got some qualitative feedback from the students as well. They really enjoyed that activity. And because of that, I'm now working on a manuscript to talk about, hey guys, here's some activities you can plot and embed into an online course. And just give them, you know, just minimal research skills because being able to read those high level papers, it's challenging, but doable. So I think Valencia really encourages that type of practice. I did it for my portfolio, but every two years they do ask us to maintain a certain level of professional development and they reward you. Like they give you incentives for saying if you have this type of professional development, if you do an action research project looking at your own teaching skills, you can get like a monetary bonus. So that's one thing I actually really, really like about this institution is they do want you to continually be a learner, right? We don't just stop teaching once you're in the classroom and you have a class. They want us to continue to learn from our students. One thing I think I remember about Valencia from some years back was that I think as part of the union contract, there are certain days that are set aside for faculty development that's meant to be including all faculty, if possible. Mm -hmm. And that that's one of the reasons why, for example, all the faculty know what the high impact practices yep. are and how they may be getting skilled. What are the things that Valencia is already doing at scale to try to assure that they have faculty who are influencing how students learn as well as 
what they learn? Yeah. So we have for our part-time, our adjunct professors, we do have a bonus that they can get like an extra hundred or $200 per semester per credit. Um, if they take a certain number of PD courses each year. So there's that incentive. There's the other one I just described every two-year cycle, you can take certain professional development courses and then document the research you're doing within your own classes. That can lead to a monetary bonus like every two years. And then the one you're referring to with our like professional development day, that's our learning day. So once a day in the spring, everybody is welcome to come. Faculty will essentially teach faculty. So I've held sessions just about like, you know, educational grading practices. What is ungrading versus Um, you know, rubric rating, how all of that can play a role in assessment and equitable practices in the classroom. But then I get to attend sessions myself. What's also cool about our learning day is that we also make sure that in the afternoon we have our time of service. So again, kind of going back to our community, you know, outreach and engagement values is so you spend like the first half of the day learning from each other, taking professional development courses, and then the second half of the day, really kind of getting yourself out there and interacting with the community and finding ways to, again, serve, you know, the surrounding neighborhood, the surrounding residents. That sounds great. For our last question, I mean, we've talked about what experiential learning is and what the challenges can be and how to scale it up. It's faculty buy-in, it's, you know, central support through a center or an office And it's, you know, these practices like professional development, like time, like grants, like incentives. I would love to hear like what the end goal is. Like you've grown undergraduate research to 22 classes. You've got this center for engaged practices. What does it look like as you progress along that journey? Like what's the end goal? Is it like everybody's doing this? Is it, you know, is it like you don't even call it? Experiential learning, you just call it learning. Paint us a picture of what, you know, what you're aiming for as you keep scaling up and supporting and and kind of maturing the practice. So ideally, I would love for every student to some have some sort of exposure to experiential education, be it undergraduate research, be it service learning, an internship. I told my students, because I was at an honors conference this past Friday, and a lot of them are interested in these types of practices. And I said, find the one that fits for you. Find the practice that meets your passion, that fits your need. You know, we can make it adaptable. So, you know, a lot of my pre-med students, they want to do research because they feel that's what the medical school is going to want. But I said, but if your passion is serving a community, you can make that work for you too. So if you want to do service learning, do that as well. My business students, you know, they oftentimes hear, well, research is really popular. Yeah, but an internship might be a better fit for your particular needs. So I told my students, you know, do the one that works for you or do multiple. Ideally, I wish that students would do multiple. You know, like I said, I I mostly only did undergraduate research. I feel like I did a disservice to myself because I would have loved to have studied abroad or done more service learning. I did a little bit when I was an undergrad, but it wasn't called that at the time. So I think just trying these different pockets, students learn more about the content they're learning because they're having to apply it, but they also learn more about themselves. And I think that's really, really important. What makes experiential education particularly special is that students have to reflect on their own beliefs and their own knowledge. And that's not always something that can happen in a classroom. Sometimes they have to do that outside. So I would love it if everybody walking through Valencia's doors, whether you're getting an AS or an AA or a certificate. But if you are just in some way having at least one experiential education experience, I think that would be amazing. I love that vision where every student participates in experiential learning. It 
sparks reflection on their own beliefs and knowledge, and they connect it to themselves and something they're passionate about. The like every student doing it reminds me of the old, it was like Bill Gates's vision for Microsoft 30 or 40 years ago. It was like, it was a computer on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software, right? So we can do it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Melanie and Steve, thank you so much for your insights on experiential learning. I really appreciate your advice and hearing your stories and hope this helps other folks benefit from these kinds of practices. Thank you both for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been terrific. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts and check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book. 